Welcome to Making the Most of Time with me, Elliot Apple. I'm a financial planner and caregiver. To give you a little background, my dad was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer when I was 25. Our world was changed instantly, and it's been a constant state of change ever since. Since then, I've been learning about the intersection of money, health, and loss, personally and professionally. This is a place to explore money, loss, and grief. It's about making the most of time, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, physically, and financially. There are no taboo topics, no question is off limits. These conversations are for people like you, people who are about to lose a significant other, widows, caregivers, and anybody affected by a major health event. I'm glad you're here. So with that, let's start making the most of time. You'll enjoy hearing from Susan Roop today. I had the pleasure of talking with Susan about caregiving and aging. She shares stories from her personal life, which really took me on a journey. She talks about her great aunt being taken advantage of financially, even people driving her aunt to the bank to have her withdraw money, the process of declaring her great aunt incompetent, and how helpful hospice was in providing care. These were just a few of the stories she took me through. Susan has many great tips for navigating caregiving and explains why a healthcare power of attorney and advanced directive are really critical to create as soon as possible. I really enjoyed our conversation and feel confident you'll walk away with new ideas or having learned something. I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Susan Roop. Susan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being here. Oh, well, thank you for having me, Elliot. Yeah. Well, why don't we kick things off with you just giving a brief introduction about yourself professionally? Okay. Um, I'm managing editor at Insurance Newsnet. Um, We publish a monthly magazine that's read by uh, financial planners, retirement planners, people who sell life and health insurance. Um, and before that, I worked for a professional association, NAFA Pennsylvania, which represents um, life insurance agents and financial planners. So um, I've had about 20 years of working around financial professionals. That does not make me an expert. I am not a licensed agent or advisor, so I can't give any advice. Um, but what I will say is that I work around professionals and talk to them literally every day. So I've learned a lot from them. Great. Well, I appreciate that introduction. And today the main topics are really aging and caregiving. And I know you have some personal experience with this. I'd love to hear more about your story. Well, you know, um, I want to start at the beginning and as I like to tell people, You know, when you're a young adult and, you know, you're getting married or getting partnered up, you know, you and your potential partner talk about, you know, having kids and being on the same page with that. But I think it's really important and nobody ever talks about this is talking, having that conversation about when your parents or family members get older, um, how are you going to take care of them? Um, Will you allow them to come into your home? Um, Will you make sure that they're taken care of in their own home? Are you prepared to support them in any way? And I think this is really crucial, especially because, you know, we've seen over the generations that extended families move farther and farther away from each other and just becomes a lot more challenging when somebody needs help. And, um, you know, you always hear that old joke about you should be nice to your children because someday they'll choose your nursing home for you. <laughs> but I really think you have to be nice to your child-in-law because they're going to have the final say about whether you go. Um, you know, if you have if you have a lousy relationship with a family member, um, don't expect them to welcome you into their home when the time comes that you need help. I mean, that's that's not going to happen. 
Um, and, yeah. and I was really lucky um, when my father-in-law needed some help and we had him come live with us. We all got along pretty well. So um, I think that really was a big help. But I think my biggest experience in caregiving was um, for my great aunt. And I really think that um, when you have a family member who is single and has no children, um, really need to think about who's going to take care of that person or look out for them when the time comes, because they're not going to have uh, close relatives to fall back on. And, you know, I think you really need to, you know, see if you can open up that conversation about, hey, have you ever thought about what's going to happen to you if, you know, you can't stay in your home anymore or you get sick for an extended period of time? Who's going to take care of you? And you may find um, that that person has actually thought about that and, and they may welcome the opportunity to share those thoughts with people. Mm-hmm. Um, other times, maybe they haven't thought about it, um, but um, I think it's kind of delicate. It's a delicate subject because I think a lot of times an older person thinks, well, this person's only after my money or they want to, you know, kick me out of my house. Um, and that's not always the case. But um, what was what was your experience like with that? I mean, you mentioned caring for your great aunt. What What was that like for you? Well, um, you know, a little family background. My great aunt was my mother's aunt, and she and my mother were always close. She was had been divorced long before I was born and had no children. Um, got to a point in life where she was one of seven siblings and outlived all but one. So she really didn't have any close family members to fall back on. Um, she had a, a really great network of friends, but, you know, they were all getting older. And at one point, she had asked my mother if, when the time came, would my mother be the executor of her estate? And my mother said yes. But a few years later, my mother was diagnosed with cancer, and her prognosis was very poor. And, you know, she, was, she knew she was going to end up dying before my aunt did, which is what mm. happened. Um, and it turned out that during this time, my family and I moved to a town right next to my aunt. And she and I had always been close as well. She did a lot for me when I was growing up. And my mother said to me, you know, you know, your aunt's going to outlive us, outlive me. And you need to, you know, take over. So I approached her and I said, you know, mom's really sick and the prognosis is very poor. And, you know, there's a good chance that you're going to outlive her. I said, how about we go meet with your attorney and I'll be the executor of your estate. And I promise I'll do whatever I can to make sure your wishes are carried out and all of that. So we went and, you know, she, she understood. How did she respond to that initially? I'm curious. Um, She knew that my mom was sick. She knew that my mother Mm -hmm. was sick. So I think that, yeah, she really didn't put up a fight. So we went to the attorney and while we were there, he also suggested that we draw up, um, a power of attorney, and also that she would complete um, whatever form for health care, you know, what what her Mm -hmm. wishes were, you know, did she want to be kept alive by artificial means or, you know, all those different things that you have to make decisions for. So what is that, an advanced directive? Is that what it's called? Uh, Yeah, healthcare power of attorney, Mm -hmm. and then the advanced directive. (laughs) Excuse me. Yes. So we drew all of that up in the same, at the same time. 
So, you know, all of that was in place. The fam, I notified all the family because she had a lot of nieces and nephews. Everyone was scattered all over the place and, um, you know, notified them that, that this was done so that, you know, they, they knew. And, you know, I really think, although it's important to have a will and, you know, have someone named to be your executor, I really think that power of attorney paper is more powerful than anything because it gives so much authority to the person that you name. I think you need to be really careful who you name, make sure it's someone you trust, make sure it's someone who's going to look out after your interest. And so your great aunt named you in that role for both things? Yes. Okay. And, um, you know, older people, they're susceptible to a lot of health problems. That's pretty much a given. We expect that to happen. We expect that a lot of them are going to decline mentally as well. But I don't think that most of us expect that our elderly family members are really vulnerable to crime. Um, they're really vulnerable to being taken advantage of. And um, in a lot of cases, when this happens, that's really a pivotal event because that's what ends up, they not only lose their money, but in a lot of cases, they end up um, having to be forced out of their home because they're no longer safe there. Mm-hmm. That's what happened here. Um, my great aunt had been living in her own home by herself for more than 50 years and was taken advantage of in a home improvement scam, um, hmm. lost a lot of money. And um, we found out about it, called the police. I'm curious, Susan, if you, if you don't mind pausing real quick, just so people listening can understand better for things to watch out for. I mean, what, what was the home improvement scam? What happened? Um, okay. So somebody came to her house and told her that um, she hadn't paid her property taxes and they were there to collect them. Oh, no. So she wrote them a check. And, you know, they went on their way and they kept coming back. And my aunt had dementia at that point. So, you know, a lot of her short-term memory was gone. So my um, cousin was visiting one day and saw a bunch of, um, saw some past due bills on the table and saw and noticed that my aunt was in danger of having her house sold at a tax sale because she was delinquent paying her property taxes. My cousin said something to her about it, and she became really upset. And she said, but I gave a man money to pay my taxes a couple of weeks ago, so I don't know why this came in the mail. So my cousin called me and said, you really need to look into this. So we looked into it. I mean, she'd written him a check for a lot of money. So we made sure that the taxes got paid, um, you know, because that was the first order of business. But then... um, because at that point, my aunt could no longer drive, which was another thing. I had to have her um, driving privileges taken from her. Um, Tell me about that experience. What, well, what was that like? What happened? She had, she had put um, my contact information and my cousin's contact information on a card in her wallet so that if something happened to her when she was out, you know, whoever found her would know who to call. So it's 9 o'clock at night. The phone rings. It's police. And they asked for me and I said, yeah, this is, you know, this is Susan. And they said, well, we found this card in the wallet of your, of, you know, and said her name. 
And um, we're calling to let you know that we found your aunt wandering along the side of the road and her car was stopped. She was lost. She was um, probably a good 40 or 50 miles from home. Um, And they said, they asked her where she was going. She said, I'm on my way to my niece's house for Thanksgiving dinner. And it was two weeks before Thanksgiving and she was nowhere near my house. Mm. So um, we kind of, they took her to the hospital for observation. And her doctor said that, you know, she had dementia, but other than that, she was physically fine. They sent her home, but he um, sent a letter to PennDOT saying her driving privileges were suspended at that point. They were terminated. And so we sold her car. Um, At that point, I had the power of attorney, so I was able to sell her car. So she wasn't driving. So um, we had a network of people who were helping her, you know, like going to the store for her and things like that. I'd check in on her a couple times a week. I'd stop in and see if she needed anything. And I was, I pulled into her house the one time and there was a pickup truck there that I didn't recognize. And when I walked in the house, there was strange man sitting at the dining room table. And I said, what are you doing here? Mm-hmm. He said, well, He said, I told your aunt that um, her driveway needs repaving and her chimney needs repointing and the roof needs some work and I'll do it for her. And she was about to write him a check. And I said, Mm -hmm. do you have a contractor's license or a business card or something? I said, well, we'll talk about whether this needs to be done. And he left. He didn't respond. He just left. And um, I looked in my aunt's checkbook at that point and saw that there were checks written thousands of dollars to a man that I didn't recognize. And she said, well, yeah, he's coming here. He's going to like cut down my trees. He's going to do this. He's going to do that. Well, nobody had ever done any of that work. And there was all this money written to him. So I said to her that I was going to take her checkbook and that I would take over the bill paying from now on. So I went to her bank. I have power of attorney, told her bank that, um, if there were any large checks being written on her account that I wanted to be notified. So yeah, they were in agreement with that. Um, that was within their policy and, um, that I was going to be writing the checks on her account for, um, for whatever bills needed to be paid. So I had my name put on her bank account, not as a co-owner, but just as somebody who had authority to write checks on her behalf. Yeah. And that's great- that's a really important thing. I just want to pause real quickly, Susan, because I know a lot of people are tempted to put their name on another loved one's account. And that's that's usually not the best way to go. It's usually to do it via the power of attorney or limited right. check writing abilities. Right. Because you know, there's a whole there's a whole tax and legal issue that goes along with that. And we're we're not going to get into that today. But so at any rate, um, the bank had my contact information. They had my phone number. Um, so everything was fine and dandy until probably about another week went by Saturday morning. The bank calls me at my house and they said, you need to call the police right away. And I said, Oh, what happened? And they said, well, your aunt was here. I said, how did my aunt get there when she can't drive? Because we'd taken the car keys from her. She said, somebody dropped her off. Somebody drove her here. And, um, So I called the police. I went to the bank. 
uh, the people in the bank, oh my gosh, they were so sad. I mean, they were in tears. They said, you know, this could have been our grandmother, but legally we don't have the authority to keep her from withdrawing her money. You know, it's her money. Mm-hmm. So um, I asked my aunt what had happened, and she said that um, the people who were going to do the work on her house that said they were going to do the work on her house came to the house and asked for money so they could start working on the house. And she said that she didn't have the checkbook because I had taken it. And they said, well, we'll drive you to the bank and you can withdraw your money. Whoa, that is bold. Yeah. So anyhow, the township police came to the house that same day and I met them there. And their words to me were that there are a lot of elderly people in our, you know, our township where we live. They all somehow criminals think they all have money. And so they're all an easy mark. But he did say to me that people who do this kind of thing are dumb and eventually they get caught. And eventually they did. And wow. they went to court, pleaded guilty, made restitution of almost all the money. Um, so that was a good thing because that money ended up paying for her care because um, the police officer who investigated this told me that our county has, um, in Pennsylvania, each county has what they call an area agency on aging, which is funded by the state, mm-hmm. provides services to older people. And that I could go to the area agency on aging and say that she was a person in danger and they would come and investigate. So they came and investigated. I was there. They gave her a cognitive test, which she failed. Um, You know, looked at the condition that the house had come into, determined that she was not safe in her own home and gave me some resources to look into assisted living. So went to visit an assisted living place that they recommended. They had a room available in their memory care unit. But um, a big snag with assisted living is that for my understanding is that if a person needs skilled nursing care, that you can put them there whether they consent to it or not, because their life literally depends on them being there. But assisted living is a little different situation. You can't just drop somebody off at assisted living if they don't consent to go. Yeah, they got to want to be there. <laughs> she definitely did not consent to be there. Okay. So the only option was to go to her physician and have her declared mentally incompetent. So I went and the physician mm. wasn't going to do it. So I basically just pitched a fit in his waiting room and said that she was in danger and she was not safe in her own home <clears throat> and she needed to go somewhere and she was going to get there one way or another and I wasn't going to leave till he signed the papers. So he did. So she went. Um, They took really good care of her there. But, um, you know, I just keep thinking that the people who robbed her, they just robbed her of her home. You know, it's just really a sad thing. But, um, you know, thank thank goodness it wasn't a lot worse because they, they really could have caused her some physical harm. You know, it's it's bad enough to lose money, but if somebody comes back and hurts you, that's even worse. So, you know, thank goodness we had we had what I call the magic papers that that really opened a lot of doors. And, um, you know, I, I wrote about this um, in my previous job when I worked for an agents association. 
that when you have a client, you really need to talk to them about who's going to look out after their best interests and get them thinking about that. Um, because all kinds of things can come up in life where you're not able to make a decision for yourself or act on your own behalf. Um, and, you know, in a lot of family dynamics makes it kind of hard to pick the right person. Yeah. You know, some people default to their oldest child or they default to the one who lives the closest. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're maybe they're not the right person for the job. Um, and, and I've seen a lot of families really come to blows on this. So, you know, I think it's something you really need to think about. Yeah. I'm curious when you went to the doctor's office, I want to hear a little bit more about that and sort of the doctor's reasoning for not declaring her incompetent, but then declaring her competent. I mean, what, what sort of case did you make if people are listening? I mean, how should they, how should they respond? How did you respond? Um, I was just really angry because at that point she needed to she needed to get this taken care of right away. But his, he and his he and his I guess nurse or assistant or whatever said that they really believe that this is a decision that needs to be made by families, and that doctors should not intervene. Hmm. And I said, well, if you don't intervene. She's going to be left to her own devices, and this is, and it's not going to be pretty, and it's going to be on you if something happens to her. And what really complicated the whole situation, even more than it already was, was that a few weeks before all of this started, um, my aunt was diagnosed with uterine cancer. Hmm. So um, she needed to undergo radiation treatment. She needed to go to the doctor's office every single day for so many weeks to get these radiation treatments. And with her having dementia, there's no way she was going to get there on her own. Um, So assisted living said that they would coordinate with the doctor's office to make sure that she had transportation back and forth and and all the um, all the support that she needed, you know, make sure that, you know, they were monitoring her vitals and that she was responding well to the treatment and all of that. She wasn't going to get any of this if she was in her own home and um, and all of that. So, you know, really. Um, that declaration got the whole ball rolling. So, I mean, we were dealing with getting her her treatment, getting her out of an unsafe situation, and and all of that, and, and it all just converged at the same time. And, you know, I think the, the oncologist who was working with her and treating her, I don't think he realized the kind of situation she was in. I mean, he knew her medical situation, but he didn't know, like, her home situation, like, you know, prescribing her drugs and not knowing does she have access to get to the drugstore to get them? Who's going to administer them? Can she even afford them? So it was just a whole other set of issues that, you know, needed to be dealt with. Yeah. I, I'm curious, once you got the form that declared her incompetent, what what was that process like? Um, he signed the form. I took it to assisted living. They've, you know, made arrangements to move her in and she was there. She stayed there that night. Oh, okay. um, We we gradually got some family members to help and bring some of her furniture from her house in and some of, you know, her clothes and familiar things. So, you know, she was able to settle in a little bit, but um, it was not the same as being in her own house. Yeah. Definitely. And how was that when she was finally settled in assisted living? Did she I don't like think it? She never really was fully settled because she just kept thinking, you know, with dementia, 
She just kept thinking she was there temporarily mm. and that sooner or later someone was going to take her home and, you know, that, that wasn't going to happen. And, you know, it's just, it's just really sad. You know, I tell people, nobody ever says, yippee, my prayers are finally answered. I had to leave my, finally got to leave my home and, and move in with my kids, or I finally got to go to assisted living. Nobody looks forward to that. Nobody does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nobody does. Um, when you were going through this with your with your great aunt, deciding sort of healthcare powers and all of that, I mean, how was she responding through all this? Obviously, she didn't want to go to assisted living, but was she open to talking about sort of what sort of treatment she wanted and that sort of thing? Yeah, she she was very open about that. That um, you know, she didn't want to have any extraordinary mem- uh, any extraordinary measures taken. And she used to always say, she says, I'm a Christian and I'm not afraid to die. So I think that really, um, that was really her guiding thing in, throughout all of this. She knew that she had cancer. She knew that um, it was treatable and she was willing to undergo that. And, you know, because of her age, she was in her 90s at that point. They weren't going to um, make her undergo really aggressive treatment because, as the doctor said, this type of cancer in a 92-year-old woman um, progresses very slowly anyway, so something else is going to kill her before the cancer does. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and she knew that she needed to undergo this treatment, and she really didn't suffer any side effects from it, which was a good thing. And as I said, the staff at Assisted Living knew that this was happening, so they really were able to keep her comfortable you know, monitor her, um, you know, I really can't say enough for the staff at assisted living. They really took wonderful care of her. Um, she made a lot of friends there. The, um, one of the things that I liked about the facility when I visited was that all the residents, they weren't sitting around in their rooms all day. They were engaged in activities all day long. And they were really friendly. People reached out to her and said, oh, we hope you'll move in here. You know, you can sit with us at meals. You know, we we like to do this together or do that together. And maybe you'll join us. And my aunt was always very social. So this was a good environment for her to be in. Um, Unfortunately, she was only there less than a year, had a massive stroke um, Mm. and ended up in the hospital. And she just was not able to go back to assisted living. So she went to a skilled nursing facility after that, um, deteriorated pretty rapidly because of the stroke, and was gone in, in, in about a year. Um, and, and another thing that I really can't say enough about is hospice care, because she was eligible for hospice care when she was in skilled nursing, so that just really provided another layer of care on top of what she was already getting. And... Um, they really kept good tabs on her as far as, you know, keeping us informed about what her condition was and, you know, just, just, just staying on top of things. Nursing homes are so understaffed. There are a whole lot of reasons why, and we're just not going to get into that today, but it was really nice to have somebody else there really looking out for her. So Mm -hmm. if you have a family member who's in a care facility and they're eligible for hospice care, I would really recommend that you seek it out and use it. Okay. So for just so I'm getting the timeline right, it was a little less than a year in assisted living. Right. 
And then she went to skilled nursing after that when she had the stroke. And she was there for another year? Is that? Um, She was there for a little less than a year. She moved in in January and and, um, she passed away in December. And at what point did you bring in hospice? Was that at the very beginning? Was that a few months in? Probably about a month or so in, her caseworker had called me and said, you know, your aunt's eligible for um, hospice care while she's here and Medicare will pay for it. And, um, you know, we really recommend that you seriously consider saying yes to it. I thought, well, you know, who who says no to having more care? <laughs> yes. So, um, so we, we did. And and really the um, hospice people who worked with her, they were really nice. I mean, they, they, she liked them and um, I really can't say enough about it. Yeah. How often, I'm curious, how often did they come in or what sort of care were they providing that was maybe different than the skilled nursing facility? Well, they were coming in probably two or three days a week and they weren't there the whole day, but they would be there like maybe a couple of hours um, they'd be monitoring her vitals. Um, they'd spend some time talking with her to see, you know, like is she in pain, um, you know, is she able to eat? Um, you know, just things like that. Just basically observing her general condition. I really think when you see somebody day in and day out, you don't realize how they're declining. Um, mm-hmm. if you're there a little less frequently. I think you tend to notice things more, Yeah, but, um, yeah, that's. It, it was just nice that somebody was there and really focusing their attention on her rather than, oh, let's let's do what we have to do here because we have thirty other patients to take care of today. Yeah, and for people who have never gone through the hospice system, what was that process like for you? So your caseworker, social worker contacted you. What what happened next? Um, I gave the go ahead, and they contacted hospice. And hospice came up with like, I want to say a care plan or a treatment plan, but they're not really giving treatment. It's more like, let's keep that person comfortable and let's, you know, help them and the family for whatever comes next. Mm -hmm. And, you know, basically said, this is our assessment of her. You know, this is where we think she's at. Um, You know, this is what's going on with her. And we'll, we'll notify you as things change. Which um, my mother, um, when she was in the final maybe six months of cancer, she um, was admitted to hospice. And it was you know, a little different type of hospice. And um, one of the things that they required the family to do is that um, they wanted to meet in a counseling session with two or three family members. I think it was no more than three. Hmm. So... I went, my dad went, my aunt went, um, and had a session with the hospice counselor. Basically, they talked a lot about what to expect when your family member is really getting toward the end of their life. Um, and, and really dealing, I think one of the things that really struck me and, and I carry that with me is she said that everybody experiences grief in their own way and you don't know how you're going to experience it until it happens. So you can't predict, but, um, this, this way you can anticipate how other family members are going to react because, um, you know, there are different types. She talked about some people get angry. Some people cry all the time. Um, some people take up a cause. Um, 
some people take charge when, you know, they want to boss everybody else around <laughs> when it's time to you know, make all the final arrangements. Some people get withdrawn. Some people experience anticipatory grief where you start grieving before the person's actually dead. Um, some people experience delayed grief. They may go through the whole funeral, everything and not shed a tear. And then two months later, you know, they're falling apart. So um, I think it was really easy um, when the time came and, you know, my mother passed, just looking at the different family members and seeing how everyone had reacted in their own way and reacted pretty much like the hospice counselor said they would. Um, in my great aunt situation, um, I, she came from a big extended family, you know, lots of nieces and nephews and they were all pretty close with her, although we were all scattered all over the country. But they all did a good job of keeping in touch with her over the years. But I always say I'm convinced that a family crisis brings out the worst in everybody and really saw that, uh, you know, some some family members were very angry that mm -hmm. um, I had put her in a facility. They didn't think she needed it. Um, somebody said that um, the only thing I was going to accomplish was spend all of her money on a home. Mm. Um and somebody else criticized the way I sold her house, um, you know, wow. just just things like that. And and I think a lot of family members who didn't see her regularly, maybe saw her once a year, didn't realize how she had declined. Um, and, you know, really just um, I will say a lot of them came to visit her when she was in the facility, especially when she was in skilled nursing. Um, people came and, and that was nice that, you know, they visited her while she was alive. But. You know, they, they saw how she had gone downhill. And I think at that point, um, there wasn't any doubt that she was where she needed to be. How how did you respond to those criticisms, though? I mean, you're taking up all this work and it's a burden and time consuming. And then people are telling you all the things you're doing wrong. I mean, <laughs> how did you respond to them? And <laughs> Well, you know, I thank them for their opinion. But I reminded them that I was the one that she entrusted to make these decisions on her behalf. So, you know, they, I was going to do it with or without their blessing. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And was it sort of the turning point? Did you invite them to come see her or how did that play out you know, for them I, to sort of I come around? I didn't really need to invite anybody because they wanted to see her. Hmm. Um, you know, they, all, they visited her when she was still in her own home and kept in touch with her. I mean, her nieces and nephews, they always sent gifts on her birthday and Christmas. And, you know, the ones who live far away, they, they'd make time to come and visit her, you know, at least once during the year. Um, I really think that because she didn't have her own children, that I think her nieces and nephews really went out of their way to include her or reach out to her because, you know, nobody wants to see a family member be lonely. Yeah. So I give them a lot of credit for doing that. Yeah. Hmm. Sounds like a lot of, a lot of hands in the cookie jar, but in the end it seemed to have worked out even if the grief showed up in a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. I'm curious. I want to go back because one of the common questions I get is how to choose an assisted living or a nursing facility and all that. So I'd be curious, you know, is there only one in this town or are there multiple? How, how did you come around to this specific one that she ended up in for a little less than a year? Um, well, for assisted living, I went to the one that um, I'm trying to think. Oh, 
Um, when my aunt was first being evaluated because they thought, you know, she had cancer, um, at this point, I already was looking into having her go somewhere um, because she wasn't safe in her home. And um, her doctor mentioned this one facility. He said, I think you would like it. Um, he said, you should check it out. And Area Agency on Aging said the same thing. I think you should, I think you would like it. You should go check it out. So I went there right away because they had a vacancy. They had a couple of private rooms that were available. And the price was right. Um, and it was a, a very nice setting. And it was convenient so that, you know, I could get there easily to see her. And it just, it really worked out. A lot of things just fell into place. Um, as far as when she went into skilled nursing, um, she was, she'd been hospitalized for this stroke. And the social worker at the hospital said, you know, she can't go back to assisted living because they can't provide the kind of care that she needs. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, what would you suggest I do? She says, well, I'm going to give you the names of two nursing homes that I know have vacancies right now. So um, I chose the first one, went and visited it. And it wasn't great, but it wasn't horrible. And it was real close to my office. So I could pop in anytime, you know, be real convenient and... So that's where she ended up going. Um, so it wasn't really a big, big search. Um, it's just kind of how it worked out. But I, if I had to go and look, especially for assisted living, because in Pennsylvania, assisted living standards really vary quite a bit. It's not real heavily regulated in Pennsylvania. So, I mean, you've got some really great assisted living facilities that provide all kinds of services. And you have places that people are basically being warehoused. So, um, you know, the thing that I really look at is the, is the residents, do they seem happy and engaged or are they all sitting in front of the TV board? Um, I don't want to see people bored. I want to see people engaged. And every time I went to visit my aunt, she was always involved in some kind of an activity. One of my family members complained to me that she kept trying to call her on the phone in her room and she would never answer. I said, that's because she's out <laughs> doing activities. She's not sitting in her room all day. <laughs> um, and they had that's nice a great board. problem to have. Yeah. And they had nice outdoor spaces for the people to sit and enjoy and get out in the fresh air. And I think that's really important too. So you know, I think they've really made a huge effort to, to keep the guests, keep the guests act, keep the residents active. Um, yeah. I think if I were looking now at a facility, I would ask to see the daily activity schedule and just see what all they're offering because some places the activity schedule is, you know, we show them a movie every now and again, and we might bring we might bring someone in from one of the local churches to do a hymn sing or we'll play bingo, and it's not much more than that. Um, but mm-hmm. it, it's really nice if they have activities that are really varied, and you know, I I think keeping that social and, you know, keeping your brain active. I think that's really important. Yeah, that's great. Those are great tips, Susan. Um, I'm, I want to know more about if there's anything, you know, now sort of hindsight 2020 that you'd go back and change. If you had gone through this entire experience, is there anything you would have done differently now at this point? Uh, I don't think that I On the one hand, I wanted to be transparent with the family members and let them know this was going on because my aunt um, lived a very frugal life, but she had 
money stashed away. And everybody, everybody knew it. So um, I really wanted to make people aware that I wasn't after her money. Um, that I wasn't doing this because I wanted her money. I was doing it because I wanted to keep her safe. And I am, so I, I wanted to let everybody know that this was going on because I didn't want there to be any surprises. On the other hand, when you tell people you're inviting their opinion and, <laughs> you know, it was just too, too many people throwing their opinions around, um, but I also had some family members that volunteered to come in and help clean out her house. Um, one of my cousins came from out of town and brought her a TV for her room, which was really a, a wonderful gesture. Um, yeah. I had family members who volunteered to haul furniture from her house to assisted living. So she would have some familiar things in her room. Um, so yeah, people, people stepped up and helped in a lot of ways. So I'm, I'm really grateful for that. Yeah, I find with caregiving, it always takes a village. But with, with that, there comes some downsides with opinions. Yeah, we all have them. Yes. Uh, is there anything else you want to convey for anybody listening? Anything you've learned? Any important tips before we wrap up with something I like to ask every guest on the podcast? Um, I think that um, if you have a family member and they're getting older, keep your eyes and ears open. Um, and, and just, you know, be, be aware of when something might be coming or happening to them and, and kind of look at some of the signs that, you know, you, you may need to step up in the future. And, and I think you, we all have emotions when it comes to our family members. Um, I think you really need to put your emotions aside and, and just really concentrate on what's best for that person and, you know, not, not so much about what you think, um, but, but what's really best for them, you know, set all of that aside and think about what's best for them. Well said, I, I want to know more about sort of the signs if, you know, for people who have not gone through this or maybe haven't gone through it recently, what, what would you be looking out for? Um, is their house messier than usual? And, and I'm not talking about clutter, but I mean, are there cobwebs hanging from the ceiling? Um, you know, in, in my aunt's case, she was wearing the same clothes every day because um, she'd been in the habit of taking her dirty clothes down to the basement to wash them. But she'd kind of forgotten how to use the washer and dryer, and we didn't realize that. Mm -hmm. So there was a huge pile of dirty clothes there that she'd kind of forgotten about which is why she's wearing the same thing every day. Um, are they eating well? Um, you know, are they cooking for themselves? Um, you know, things like that. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So I want to wrap up Susan. And the question is, what is one act of kindness that's been transformational in your life? Um, wow. Um, that's a tough one. One act of one act of kindness. Yeah, I mean, if you have multiple stories you want to share, that's that's great too. You mean like with family or with friends or just in general? Just in general. Wow, and one act of kindness. I really think that this goes back a lot of years, but when I was first out of college and starting my first job. 
Um, and I'd moved away from home to a place where I didn't know anybody. Um, one of my coworkers invited me to come to her house for dinner the first week that I was on the job and introduced me to a whole bunch of her friends who were there having dinner with her. And that just kind of had this big snowball effect because now Mm -hmm. I knew people and they knew people and they invited me to go places with them. So now all of a sudden I have this, this really nice social life and it all started with one person asking me to come to her house to have dinner with her. So, um, I think about that. I think about that. That's amazing. One such sort of seemingly small act, but the impact it's had even even to this day and the remembering mm-hmm. of it. Great. Well, thank you for sharing and thank you for being on the podcast today, Susan. All right. Thank you, Elliot. Thank you for all you do. Elliot Apple is an investment advisor representative of Kindness Financial Planning, LLC. However, in hosting this podcast, Elliot is not acting as an investment advisor representative individually or on behalf of Kindness Financial Planning. The information and opinions in this podcast are for general, informational, and educational purposes only and should not be considered investment, financial, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of publication, and such opinions are subject to change. No representation is made as to the completeness or accuracy of the information presented. Any past performance referenced is historical and no guarantee of future results. All indices referenced are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. All investments involve a certain level of risk. You should carefully consider if an investment is suitable for you before making an investment. Please consult your legal, financial, and other professionals to determine what may be appropriate for you.